Hi everyone, and hi Alistair. I remember an evening in Paris, seven years ago, when we were celebrating with some friends that the Paris Agreement had just been signed, and it was a typical Parisian cafe close to Gare du Nord, a northern train station in Paris, because environmentalists and also many diplomats traveled by train. And we were happy that finally, after 21 years of negotiations, a surprisingly ambitious treaty was agreed upon by all countries. But we were also worried. This climate treaty set a limit to global warming, but there wasn't like a detailed plan on which country was actually going to do what. And suppose some experts would warn you that uh, for, for many years they would warn you that your house may soon burn down and then it catches fire and it starts to burn and you already lose your kitchen and the fire is spreading to the living room and at that moment you see the fire brigade celebrating in a nearby cafe that they have reached agreement that the burning should be limited to only your living room, but that the rest of your house may not burn down. And they couldn't find agreement about who would stop the burning, but they are happy that they all agree that the fire should be stopped. And the world leaders also set a limit in Paris. Uh, well, two limits actually, but the key level that we should focus on is that our planet may not warm more than one and a half degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. And therefore, we have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions so that we can limit global warming. And I mainly remember from the late afternoon in Paris, the mix of feelings between knowing that the best possible diplomatic consensus had been achieved. And as a diplomat, I was really, really impressed. I still am, as a former diplomat, about what was achieved. But we also realized, as environmentalists, that this was at best only the beginning of tackling a problem that is perhaps the most complicated challenge that mankind ever had to deal with. And we are now seven years further, and greenhouse gas emissions have been going up instead of down, and the impact of climate change is by now hard to ignore for anyone. The ones that claimed that climate change was a hoax or a Chinese hoax are now silent, and nobody reminds them of their folly. And the world moved on since Paris, and that move was mostly in the wrong direction. Democracy and civil liberties are under threat, and so is multilateralism, and meanwhile, we see right-wing populism on the rise with its favorite mix of nationalism. And there's war in Europe, and we miss essential ingredients to solve climate change at the political level. That means things like listening to others, and compassion, and vision, and above all, the willingness for international cooperation. And it's against this background that the World Meteorological Organization launched a new report earlier this week stating that there's a 50-50 chance of average global temperatures reaching 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial level in the next five years. And that is exactly the limit of the Paris Agreement that I just mentioned. As Petteri Talas, the WMO Secretary General, said, the 1.5 centigrade figure is not some kind of random statistic, but it's rather it's an indicator of the point at which climate impacts will become increasingly harmful for people and indeed for the entire planet. And that point is now within reach somewhere within the next five years. And I am deeply worried about the lack of climate action and the rapidly rising temperatures and the lack of alarm amongst the world leaders. So, yeah, where does that leave us, Alistair? And welcome. Sorry for the long introduction. They tend to become longer and longer when I start to speak. <laughs> That's great. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, I was in Paris as well, um, sitting in a booth that evening when they agreed the Paris when the Paris Agreement was banged through. Uh, Laurent Fabius, the French foreign minister, banged down a small green hammer onto on uh, sitting on the, the in the hall, and, and that was it. It was through, and you thought, my God, they've broken the logjam of so many years of discussion, so many years of debate. That through the Copenhagen summit in 2009, where, they, where the negotiations fell apart in the middle of the night. And it was such, as you say, such a landmark that they actually managed to sew it together, to sew together these, these so many diverse interests around the world and finally get something, a blueprint for action. But as you say, it's a blueprint for 
limiting the fire to the uh, to the living room, isn't it? Or maybe even just to the bedroom. <laughs> you know, it's not. It's uh, it's an awful long way from from promising to do something to get it getting it done. Um, so yeah. you know, one point five is a pretty crucial limit for us. Um, I've written about the differences between one point five and two degrees, which was the original limit that was the. Well, the two degrees is the, the one of the, the the main limit of the Paris Agreement, but uh, they set in the um, one point five as a sort of the ambition there. And you know, just to summing up a few points, you know, our oceans will continue to become warmer and more acidic, even as temperatures rise one point five degrees. They're already up one point one, one point two, perhaps. Sea ice and glaciers are going to continue to melt. Sea level is going to continue to rise. It's going to become more extreme. You're going to have more heat waves, more downpours. Um, everything's just going to get messed up even more. And, and of course, you know, we talk about 1.5, but authentic temperatures have already risen several degrees above pre-industrial times. Uh, as the ice is melting and that you're trapping more heat because the, the, the heat from the sun isn't being reflected back into, into space. It's being soaked up by darker ground that's exposed and the darker water so the arctic warming is disproportionately high and what happens in the arctic affects all of us um as uh petri talos uh, said the wmo secretary uh, head of the wmo and all this warming is affecting our biodiversity our food systems our health the availability of water so you know we can confidently say that not one listener to this podcast will miss the impact of climate change on his or her own lives. Um, so then, of course, you know, we've, we've got this chance, 50-50 chance of um, exceeding 1.5 degrees. And then that doesn't mean we've breached this threshold in the Paris Agreement because it can be, you know, the weather itself gets warmer and colder from year to year by with natural variations. You have the El Nino in the Pacific or La Nina. El Nino makes the planet warmer. La Nina makes it a bit cooler. But we're still, we're just, you know, we're just getting inexorably closer to this 1.5 degrees uh, that it could be exceeded for a longer, longer, longer period. So we had, you know, last year was 1.1 degrees above the pre-industrial baseline, according to the WMO. Again, uh, their, their final report for last year is going to be released um, uh, next week. Um, and... Of course, the the back-to-back La Nina events at the start and and end of 2021 actually cooled global temperatures. So we're probably already worse than 1.1, possibly 1.2. And of course, these La Nina events, which which bring cool waters to the surface of the Eastern Pacific, um, don't reverse the long-term trends. So, you know, you have a big blip to El Nino, which warms up the planet, and then we're... um, then we're back on on track. We're back very close to 1.5. So, yeah, the Paris Agreement's formal goal is to limit warming to well below 2 degrees while pursuing efforts for 1.5. I remember in Paris there was a lot of controversy about even adding the 1.5 degrees to the the negotiations because it was so so radical in a way. Um, You know, the small island states, developing states, which are under threat of being swamped to be wiped off the map by by rising sea levels kind of have been insisting on on this level for a long time saying you know it's 1.5 to stay alive has been their slogan and they gradually rallied this coalition of um a high ambition coalition of the run-up to paris that included the united states at the time under president barack obama um so this this of course that's <laughs> those days are long gone with donald trump in the meantime but it was a massive breakthrough and it's tragic if we start to break through that limit just a decade after Paris. I think how dreadful that would be. Um, and it was hard enough to get nations to agree to two degrees in the first place as a guardrail for, for climate change. Um, that idea originally came from the European Union and the you know the EU, and it was only adopted by, by the G7 countries uh, at a summit in 2009. Uh, Barack Obama was actually the last uh, to sign up to that, I was there as well in Lucila in Italy, um, <laughs> a, a city that had been almost destroyed by an earthquake. They decided to have their G7 summit there that year. <laughs> so, but anyway, wow. yes. 
Yes, it's. I remember also sitting in that same cafe that same evening or same late afternoon, I think it was, that we were stunned that this one and a half degrees had actually made it. This was really the kind of last minute that they managed to uh, to push it through. And yeah, where we are now is that we see all over the world signs that we are clearly not on track to 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 limit global warming, and go governments aren't doing enough. And then uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has, has led to, to, on the one hand, hope for a faster green transition, and, and a hunt, but on, on the other hand, you see a hunt for oil and gas elsewhere. And uh, there's, I think, one really notable sign uh, that, that we saw this week of, of these distorted priorities is that an oil company, Saudi Aramco, overtook Apple as the world's most valuable company. And if you if you think about that for a moment, normally the world's most valuable company, that says something about the the day and age in which we are living. And I, um, I can say I was kind of happy that technology, which is part of solutions normally, that a technology company was the most valuable company. But that an old-fashioned company that is producing you know, a, a, a literally fossil fuel of, of form of, of energy uh, is now the most valuable company in the world. I think that is that is a, a scary development. And, and it's just, it's not saying everything, of course, but it's a sign on the wall that, that we shouldn't ignore. And Aramco was, was of course, stoked by, by a surge in the oil prices, and that was linked to this Russian invasion of Ukraine. And then at the same time, all this rising inflation that we're dealing with is of course throttling the demand for for technology stocks and technology is really uh, pretty pretty bad for those that follow the stock market at the moment and then you saw on wednesday that aramco was suddenly worth uh 2.4 uh, 2. trillion dollars that is uh that's 2.4 and an incredible amount of numbers that is the worst of the company Surpassing that of Apple for the first time since 2020, and and uh, so it's uh, Apple's just below that now. So it's just one of those many signs that we are really badly off track, and basically emissions are going up, whereas emissions should go rapidly down. And and the planet is not waiting for politicians uh, to take action. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's depressing, isn't it? We're getting so dangerously close to the 1.5 limit. Um, but then, you know, I can feel already that the governments are sort of positioning themselves because, of course, the Paris Agreement itself doesn't say what crossing the 1.5 limit would mean. Where do you judge crossing threshold? You know, if we do it in one year, they've spelt out Clearly, that the limit doesn't mean one doesn't mean one by five, because you can have you know variations in the weather can mean that we go up by a couple of uh, 0.2 degrees here or there. You know, it could be it could be just natural variations. Think back, there was a big El Nino in 1998. The climate skeptics always seize upon the saying. Um, you know, global warming peaked in 1998 was their argument for a few years there because it had been a freak year. So we can have freak years, but then the Paris Agreement doesn't define what a normal year is. Then, you know, do we need to have um, if we cross over if we cross over uh, 1.5 one year, is it, or do we cross it two years, or three years, or five years, or ten years, or or or, or twenty years? I don't know what what you know the definition is going to be argued about for for a long time. And even they haven't actually said that it's, you know, globally average surface temperatures, and also and that's, you know, defined by who, the WMO. Um, there's all differences between NASA's measurements or the 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 I don't know the British Meteorological uh, Services measurements. Or there's all sorts of differences there. So um, inevitably get. 1.5 if we reach when we reach 1.5 i think there's no question that we will so it's when rather than if uh, when we reach it there's going to be start to be an awful lot of talk about overshoot which is then we've discussed this before that's the idea that you can go above 1.5 but you can develop some really fancy nice technologies to suck greenhouse gases out of the air somehow or other 
Um, the obvious technology is to plant trees, as we've discussed <laughs> before. Um, but there's an awful lot of other fancy technologies out there for using industrial fans to extract CO2 from the air and bury it underground and, and so on. And so, um, so, you know, I think it's inevitable, it's inevitable we're going to cross 1.5, certainly in one of these years coming um, by the end of this decade, um, despite what everybody's saying, I think, um, to, to all these promises of action. So we just have to avoid slipping into despair when we get to that moment. Uh, you just have to try and turn it into positive energy to to say this is an extra spur for action. We, we've already um, we've already crossed this threshold once, one year, um, two years perhaps. But let's let's do something about it now. We redouble our efforts. All these promises we've had that have turned out to be so empty in past years. Let's make sure that we try and fill them up with something or other. Um, but of course, if this would be a warming of 1.5 in any one year, it's going to be a terrible foretaste of what crossing the long-term threshold is going to be like for us all. It's not going to be good. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's also it depends a bit on where you start measuring what is pre-industrial. Is that uh, let's say the 1830s in England, or should we move to the 1850s when also the European continent started to industrialize? So there's. There's a lot of debate there how you measure and you will see when we get really close to 1.5 that a lot of organizations in the world want to reach, um, uh, want to want to get headlines in the newspaper. So a lot of there'll be competition who will be the first to announce that we have reached 1.5 and then you will see any other organization that feels that they've been they've been bypassed by the other organization. They will then say loudly that it's not like 1.5 which is, of course, a completely irrelevant debate because it's not like, you know, somebody is passing the finish line and, 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 and things change directly at that day afterwards. Um, it is, it is uh, it's a general uh, indication that above 1.5, things are really getting out of control and that doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen much faster than, than, than we see. And talking about desperation, I just wish that our political leaders would be desperate because they should be desperate because of everything that is happening. But they just look on their four-term election cycle and then, uh, you know, they say, oh, we shouldn't be alarmist. And they, they do a few cosmetic uh, moving of deck chairs on the Titanic. And if you just want to see an example of what is happening right at the moment, I mean, look now in India, in India and Pakistan, all, all South Asia, actually, but there's this blistering heat wave that is scorching the wheat fields, is reducing the yields in of the second biggest grower, and it's now damping expectations for exports that the world is relying on to alleviate this global shortage. So temperatures have now soared in, in, in this month to the highest ever for the months on a record that is going back to 1901. And it is, it's ruining India's wheat crop production and, uh, and, and that exactly in a crucial growth period. So Bloomberg has made an estimate uh, after talking to farmers and civil servants and experts that the yields have now slumped from 10 to 50% in this season. And this could really be a serious blow to global wheat supplies, especially if you consider the impact of Russia's invasion on Ukraine, which has appended the trade flows uh, out of the, the critical Black Sea breadbasket region, prompting warnings of short, uh, food shortages. And then if you then look to the bigger picture of what is happening now with an extreme example of bad governance that Russia is showing by just randomly invading another country without any reasonable reason to do so, combined with the impact of climate change on, on India, then you see, for instance, the, the, the lack of shipments of, of, of wheat and other forms of food uh, to, uh, to a main buyer like Egypt. And so this, this lower production in India would jeopardize uh, the... the um, the ability uh, in in India to 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 make up for the shortfall that was created by by Russia. So, some time ago, the uh, food and and commerce minister uh, in India predicted India would export as much as 15 million tons of wheat in this fiscal year, which will be a record high, and double what it shipped last year. But now, with this 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 incredible heat wave that is going on. Um, all that is thrown into doubt, and it's it's now raising concerns for the domestic market, where 
millions are depending on on farming as their main livelihood and food source uh, so so this weaker production will now lead to a drop in the farmer's income and it will squeeze margins just as the cost of fertilizer and fuel have have also soared so the government is is now uh, also buying wheat for its food aid program but all this together gives a, a very grim picture of not only the state that we are in now but i i think increasingly this is this kind of scenario where a lot of these bad developments that we've been discussing in this podcast are now mutually reinforcing each other and that is my biggest worry in 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 for the near future that we will see increasingly examples of all these big worries that we have how they, how they are compounding each other and it's it's getting worse and worse and we're kind of in a in a downward spiral uh, that that is that is impossible to stop and i realize quite well why i'm saying this that many people call me an optimist but here i am really really very pessimistic about what's going on what would you say alistair yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's very hard to be optimistic in this situation, isn't it? Um, especially this heat wave in India and Pakistan. I and mean, we've, we've, we're in a world that's warmed by 1.1 degrees. We're worried about breaching 1.5 degrees. And here we have hundreds of millions of people in large parts of India and Pakistan exposed to this deadly heat for, for almost two months. It, it's just shocking. You know, this this could, of course, happen in a in a normal climate probably, but it would be a once in a thousand year event, I'm, I'm guessing, let's say, um, you know, it just doesn't, it's just, just as, just as crazy. It's, it's the climate is on steroids with global warming. So, so far the numbers I saw have looked up at least 25 people have died in India and more than 65 deaths have reported in Pakistan. But, um, the true numbers are expected to be an awful lot higher than that because just because, you know, in rural areas, how do you, somebody dies of a heart attack brought on by heat stress i don't think there's that much clever monitoring of you know what the actual underlying causes are and then even t today i was looking there were stories about birds falling out of the skies uh, because of the heat um, they were talking about rescuers in gujarat state were picking up dozens of exhausted dehydrated birds dro dropping every day because of the heat wave which is drying out the water sources um, so, you know, this, these are, as you say, these are the hottest pre-summer months in recent years, you know, forcing um, in, in, Prime Minister Narendra Modi to warn of rising fire risks, of course. You have this, as you say, there's a cascading effects, system of effects here. You know, the birds are dropping out of the skies. The, the wheat crop is, is at risk. Um, people, are, people are suffering, um, you know, even in the, you know, the, the vet, vets, Managing to uh, feeding birds multivitamin tablets in one report I saw, injecting water into their mouths using syringes. You know, I I hope they're doing an awful lot more for the people who are uh, who are suffering. But um, the sort of details you see in the reporting, kind of, <laughs> I hope that you know the people are, are being helped um, through this heat wave. It's it's dreadful. Yeah, from and from everything I I read, and well, first of all. I'm surprised how little in the Western media is reported about this horrible, horrible heat wave that's already going on for two months. I, I think if you would ask anybody in the street in, in, in London or New York, most people probably didn't even hear about it. But mm. And then the number of 25 people, I mean, thinking about it, when there was this heat wave in France in 2003 in that summer, there were um, 50,000 people that had died and... As far as I know, not one bird in France has dropped dead out of the sky. Now in India, they are falling; these birds are falling dead out of the sky, and only 25 people have been killed in in a country where there's like a billion people living. I, I, I fear that the numbers. I, I let's say I hope that the 25 is is a correct number, but I I, I fear the number might yeah. be way much higher, and it's of course very difficult to 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 measure. So only. A fraction of the Indians, only the the wealthy top, they they have air conditioning. So, what you see is that people they they soak rags in in water, then hang them in the doors and windows in the hope that that will give some cooling. But it, what you see is that even though 
few people have uh, a few a small percentage has air conditioning but they have pushed india's electricity demand to a record high and then what happens is that 70% of india's electricity comes from the most polluting form of fossil fuel that we have which is coal so the government is now converting passenger trains to cargo service to rush coal supplies to those uh, beleaguered power plants and they are now importing more coal from ab abroad so to come back to my earlier comparison with your house that is on fire and those firemen drinking coffee and celebrating burning more coal to keep cool is of course like putting out fire with gasoline and rolling rolling blackouts are are now hurting the industrial output so in the short term the experts say that india basically has no choice to burn more coal uh, to to keep the fans and the air conditioning on, although that is only for the elite, so you might wonder if that's really like there's no choice. But in the long term, India must transition to re renewables. And um, you have you, the problem is you have heat and humidity. So at, at some stage, it just becomes impossible for the human body's organs to, to function normally. So... A body cannot cool itself, and uh, a lot of people in India are working outside in the fields. They're working on building construction or in agriculture, or they work in, in, in horribly hot factories that are not cooled. So it's estimated that more than a billion people in South Asia are now at risk of uh, heat-related illnesses, and hospitals are... I heard even even preparing special wards for uh, for these people. Yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? I don't know if you've read it. The Ministry for the Future. It's a cli-fi climate science, like sci-fi climate um, future uh, cli-fi novel by Kim Stanley Robinson that I was reading the other day, which begins opens with a scene in India where people are dying because of a heat wave, and millions of people die. Um, and they talk about the wet bulb temperatures, um, which I think we're going to hear about a lot more in, in coming years and decades as, as the planet heats up. So these wet bulb temperatures can be deadly at a temperature around 35 degrees Celsius. Uh, you can survive uh, much hotter temperatures when it's dry because uh, you can still sweat to keep cool. But wet bulb temperature, or WBT, it's a temperature read on a thermometer, which is covered in a water-soaked cloth, uh, a wet bulb thermometer. So wet bulb thermometers get air passed over them, and um, the air is basically saturated with humidity, and you can't sweat heat away from yourself. So even at 35 degrees of a wet bulb temperature, uh, a temperature above that is likely to be fatal for even for fit and healthy people, and that's... This temperature has been reached and surpassed in some places, um, meteorologists say, but just not for long enough. So, you know, it's, it's, it, at that temperature, your body just cannot uh, switch. Your body switches from shedding heat to, to the environment to gaining heat from it. And that means that, you know, you're far, far greater risk. And um, I was in Finland a couple of weeks ago uh, where... I read reports that said that um, in a heat wave three or four years ago, there were 250 people in Finland who died um, in a heat wave um, because it's all relative. You know, it's relative also to what you're used to. If a heat wave, a heat wave in Finland is probably just 30 degrees or so, um, and you're not used to that. Uh, you would across France, um, especially people just used to no air conditioning and so on. You just you just suffer from that. In 2010, there was a heat wave in Russia, where the wet bulb temperatures, this idea of you know the heat soaked, uh, very humid um, temperature, um, there the temperature was no more than 28 degrees. So you know the thresholds, just getting used to these things, and like you say. Uh, we're going to start expanding the use of air conditioning to keep ourselves cool. That's just going to make things a lot worse if we're, if we're still relying on coal. So, sorry, another, another, another unoptimistic observation there, Alex.
Yeah, yeah, we're doing a pretty good job of of keeping everybody happy with this show today, <laughs> I think. And um, yes. yeah, so so if you want to look at the place where it's dry and hot, you have to look at uh, the American West. So uh, their temperatures are, of course, above ninety five uh, uh, Fahrenheit or or thirty eight uh, thirty five degrees uh, Celsius, but there it's dry. So basically, you can say that. Um, it is it is more like like a kind of dry sauna. I guess the the Finns are always practicing for heat waves there. And um, if you, if you look at um, at the American West, you see now that the, the federal officials are taking really unprecedented steps to protect the already record low levels of water that are flowing through the Colorado River. So the Colorado River is like feeding, I say on top of my head, I think seven states. Uh, with water and there is less and less water there so you have you have a number of these basins that were basically built in in the 1930s uh, these these amazing dams that they have like like the hoover dam and the, and the and the page dam uh, that both work for electricity as well as to to regulate the water um, but what you now see is that this mega drought that is that is going on uh, on and on in 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 uh, in the southwest of the U.S. is now threatening the water supply of more than 40 million people and about five million acres of, of farmland. And the water level in one of these reservoirs has dropped now so low that if it falls any further it will no longer be able to produce electricity on which about six million people in, in seven states rely. And that is why officials have now decided that they will delay their plan to release a huge amount of water from Lake Powell. And uh, then uh, on top of that, what they will also do, they will release a, a similar amount of water um, from uh, the, the Flaming Gorge Reservoir, which is upstream, it's, it's, it's in, in Wyoming and, and, and Utah, um, to, to fill up Lake Powell again. Uh, anybody ever traveled in the American West, you probably know uh, Lake Powell because you basically drive around Lake Powell if you want to see all the highlights, uh, natural highlights of the American West. Um, and if you have seen the Horseshoe Band or if you've seen the lower upper Antelope Canyon, that is all in the uh, little town of Page. And that town was basically created in the 1930s to make this uh, Lake Powell. Um, what you see now is that they have never ever taken these steps that they are doing now of keeping the water in and filling it with the water from another reservoir. So what they they see what what they expect what what they will see now is that with this action at least for the coming year they can keep the water levels high enough to generate electricity. Uh, but of course this is not a permanent fix because the 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 climate is changing there is getting less and less water and it is evaporating it is being used um it's already uh since the late 1990s the case that uh, this majestic colorado river that has been so strong and so powerful that it created uh, the the grand canyon that colorado river doesn't even reach uh, the sea of cortez anymore so it, it 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 just stops somewhere. There's just some 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 debris and some some plastic bottles that are left in the middle of a desert, and where once the river was continuing to the Sea of Cortez, uh, it's it's just gone. And uh, so what what they have done now is that there's in 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 total this additional million acre feet of additional water, which is really really a lot. That's about fifteen percent of 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 the lake's current volume volume. Um, and that's the, the annual amount that about 2 million households uh, use. So that is additional now to this Lake Powell, but that is that is not something you can do every year. So I wonder how they're going to solve this uh, this next year. So, yeah, so, so what should... Looking at all these things, Alistair, what should governments do? Because we, we know now that we... You know we're we're not supposed to go above one and a half, and certainly not above two uh, above two degrees of warming. Um, governments don't do much; uh, at least they don't do enough because emissions are still going up. So, so what should they do? <laughs> right, they should they should keep their promises from twenty fifteen. The Paris. 
You're when they... you're a bit. Uh, I don't hear you for a moment, but I, I we oh, had sorry. that a few times sorry, before, yeah. and then after like ten seconds, ah, you're back. You're back again. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, this, this is a dodgy Wi-Fi, I think. So governments should basically cut cut like they promised. Um, they should, uh, as the UN says, they should halve their emissions this decade, pretty much from 2010 levels. But there are an awful lot, lot of other things they can do around to, to to help out life on the planet. We don't want to depress to depress you, the listeners, too much with um, this show, but because there are things that can be done, there are there is action on the way. Governments are doing a little bit more. Cities and and investors and. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, local governments and companies are all doing more, um, even if Saudi Aramco is worth more than Apple these days. Um, but one thing they can, that one priority we should have is to protect and restore key ecosystems, you know, live in harmony with nature, as, as we promised to do, you know, restore rivers that are not reaching the sea, protect wetlands, oceans, forests, and mangroves, which can help absorb large quantities of, of, of carbon. Uh, we should also do more to support uh, small agricultural producers. You know, small farmers, especially in developing nations, uh, provide an awful lot of, of food for people. And, uh, you know, they are very dependent upon a sort of a network of everything going right for them to be able to keep on with this production. So we need to, you know, the meat industry is responsible for 15 to 18 percent of all greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, we've got and it's a significant source of water use and contamination. So let's let's support the small agricultural producers. Another front is, of course, to promote green energy, which is the flip side of cutting emissions. Uh, 35% of all global emissions come from energy production. Um, so we need to bet more on both on development and on energy production and make sure that it's going to be green. Um, you know, we need to take advantage of the fact that um, you know wind wind and solar power are really getting cheap um, and just go for that for, try and you know ditch coal completely as quickly as we can um, other ways is to combat short-lived climate pollutants co2 is the main greenhouse gas but we've got other ways that we're messing up the environment as well uh, we have soot you know black carbon which is emitted by burning um, fuel often up in the Arctic. It's black carbon soot from ships or from forest fires or from factories settles on the ice up in the Arctic or, or anywhere in the world on ice and snow. And it darkens it and it soaks up more energy and it, and it, um, and it, and it accelerates warming. Um, so we can do stuff to limit methane, ozone, hydrofluorocarbons, uh, which are found in refrigerants. Altogether, we can do a lot on, on that sort of thing those fronts too, the short-lived uh, pollutants. And then uh, another, another way to do it is to bet on adaptation, adapting to the impacts of climate change, not just mitigation, not just cutting cutting emissions. We've got to make transform, transformative adaptation. Um, I'm in the south of England at the moment where, for example, they've tr they're transforming their agriculture by starting to grow wine here, which used to be a bit south of here in France, but the soils here are very suitable for it too. So they're they're trans they're not just sort of plant trying to adapt their normal crops, but they're taking advantage of 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 the way that the climate is changing to grow crops that were unthinkable um, for throughout most of history in, in the UK. Um, so you know that's that's a positive thing to, to, to seize on to. We've got um, <laughs> some some uh, you know new crops are coming up. So there's lots of, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, things that need to be done. But we focused on, on heat um, today. Sh Sharon, I wonder if you'd be interested in, I know we, you live in Arizona. Um, you must be one of the people on the podcast who, who, have, um, who have, have experienced most from, experienced most. Would you, would you like to um, share a bit of your experiences about that? Hi, Alistair. Um, hey, Sharon. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, it, this is depressing, um, to say the least. Um, in Arizona, it is expected to be 105 this weekend. Um, oh wow! <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, I, I know. What can you say? Um, 
So I want to ask a couple of questions, and I know there's a lot of people on the call, so I'll be brief. Um, I wanted to ask you, one of the solutions that I heard, um, I believe our governor said, to this um, cut from the um, Lake Mead, Lake Powell, it is, a, it is at a tier two cut for our farmers uh, using from the central Arizona project, which is it, it, the county that I'm living in, um, was to start a desalinization plant in the Sea of Cortez um, to produce um, water, which I don't understand even what that means. So um, that's my first question. <laughs> and then um, I hear this all the time. Um, Alistair, are you sure this warming trend is not just a part of a natural cycle? That's it. Um, yeah, so that it's not part of a natural cycle. Um, it's unequivocal that uh, the planet is warming and it's unequivocal according to the UN panel of climate scientists that we're to blame in their latest report. They've studied all the all the possible explanations for it, you know, that we might be having a period of sunspots or there might be some sort of explanation for it. There's the output from the sun is is stronger than it used to be. And they, they, they say they've ruled all of these things out. And, and these the finding that, that it isn't part of a natural variation is, of course, you know, these reports are signed off by countries that have no interest in, 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 in endorsing this sort of thing. You know, Saudi Arabia, uh, which relies on oil exports or you know, very skeptical governments around the world have all agreed to this because when they've heard the arguments from the scientists, they say, well, yeah, sorry, okay, we, we, we go along with that. I think, unfortunately, it's the warmest we've had in, um, uh, what, the highest rates of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in, in a million years or so, and we've got, the, you know, the highest... We don't have temperature records going back that far that far, of course, because we never had temperature records um, before thermometers were invented. But um, uh, looking at tree rings, growth of trees and everything, it's, it's never been, the trend, is, I think, is, is unequivocal. Um, as to the desalinization plant, I don't, I don't quite know what they're doing there. Um, maybe you know about that, Alex? It's, um, I mean, that's just well, taking the salt out of the water, isn't it? Yeah, so it it is a, a technique that is uh, that is well known already. It's uh, there, there are several different techniques actually. Uh, we use membranes, for instance, uh, to 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 where you basically push the water through uh, and 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 get the the salt out. Uh, ideally, you would of course use solar power, and you have a lot of sun uh, in in, uh, in in many of those areas where you where you need it. Um, so it's doable. Most salinization, desalinization in the world, I think, is still done using fossil fuels. Um, but it is possible with um, uh, with solar panels. So, for instance, um, there's there's a, a plant in, uh, I think, in Victoria or New South Wales, anyway, on on the south side of um, of Australia, where they they fully do it with uh, solar energy. And in that case. Uh, that is a neat solution, but still there are problems because what do you do with the salt that you take out? If you immediately throw it back in the ocean, uh, then uh, then you make the ocean more salty, and that is uh, changing the uh, the environment, and that is that is bad for 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 the fish and for the environment. And actually, if you're then going to take up more water to desalinate, it becomes more and more salty, so it, it puts you back to work. So there are all kinds of challenges related to it, but uh i think in 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 the years to come and not even in the far future the situation is getting so dire in the southwest of the us that you you cannot go for one solution you need all hands on deck so that also means that you have to change your ag agriculture policies uh it, it changed the whole you should change the whole landscaping like already is happening in a place like tucson uh, which I'm not mistaken is where you're living. There, uh, there, the the local government's actually doing really good work in uh, in in doing everything they can to preserve water. It's it's even in the past years the aquifers, um, so the under underground water storages have actually been filling, even though there is this uh, this extreme drought, which I think is 
remarkable and only possible if you have uh, good good governance. But it it cannot just be a few cities that are doing a good job. It means that this whole area of all seven states in the southwest that rely on the water of um, of the Colorado River that they all work together instead of in competition uh, to each other. You still have these these water wars. You have these these very very old treaties between states about how to divide the water, and sometimes it's done, which I would think is the best way in percentages. Uh, but there are also old treaties where uh, one state guarantees to the other that at least a, a certain amount of water will be passed from the one state to the other. And yeah, when there's less and less water available, you, you cannot live up to, to that kind of commitment. So you need to look at uh, water that is used for energy production. You need to look at water that's used for agriculture. You need to use at industrial use of water uh, and 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 the water that uh, that people are using uh, but also about what you grow for and so 90 percent of almonds in the world uh, are grown in california but california is originally a desert it doesn't always look like a desert desert because we have the luxury of using basically too much water to make it greener but originally, California is a desert, and and if you you can't rely on this endless luxury of having so much water now that uh, that the amount is is reducing, so basically it asks for good governance, or to use another word, there you need more governance. And unfortunately, the trend in in the United States is that people vote for parties that um, uh, that uh, a party particularly that wants less governance, that believes already uh, since the second half of the 1980s that uh, governance is the cause of the problem and not the solution of the problem. Um, if people keep pushing for, uh, for, for that kind of narrative, you won't solve these problems without governance. It is, it is uh, as, as simple as that. And look in countries where, uh, that are efficiently governed, uh, you, you, need, you need a certain bureaucracy, you need well-educated and therefore well-paid civil servants um, to solve problems when you increasingly come into situations where individually you can no longer deal with the problems that, that you're dealing with. Just buying a gun doesn't help in solving water problems, for instance. So. Um, it's uh, I uh, I would expect that uh, with the, the the present polarization in the United States against this background of uh, of increasing climate related problems will will give a kind of friction that is going to become worse and um, a yeah I, I would say a solution is that all parties work together that you listen to the very best experts that are available and that you work out some kind of compromise between all parties involved um but i fear for the for the yeah for the mood in the us at the moment uh, that that is playing a role and this is not something you can solve within the state it's something you have to solve at a federal level uh, that's why you need uh, a good and strong and effective uh, federal government to work on these issues so um uh it um yeah so so that's uh that's a bit uh, where we are i'm looking at the clock um we, we promised we would keep these at 45 minutes i think we've passed that already um i think alistair has maybe about five more minutes left so is there's if there's a, one more question or comment um i see something is being written right now by uh, sharon she said thank you great answers i wish i had your knowledge um, well, don't oh, <laughs> thank you, that's very flattering. But don't, <laughs> you sleep <don't>... <laughs> badly if you have to this knowledge for that. change. I would say. <laughs> thank and you. Um, yeah, and then uh, yeah, Evelyn says they should stop pretending that we can just suck carbon out of the air and actually do something. Yeah, so yeah, yeah I, I would say yeah, we have to work on developing those techniques, but don't put your hopes on it because it's going to be at least in, 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 in the years to come, a tiny little trickle, and it's, it's not gonna, gonna effectively do the, the trick. So, um, okay, well, these were a lot of happy notes. I just mm. wrote in my newsletter a couple of days ago that I said that I would, uh, because there's so much negative news in the world, that I would uh, now try to send, at least for the next four months, um, only 
positive messages so i wrote uh, last night and this morning about an an, uh, an owl that i saw a special kind of screech owl the eastern screech owl that i discovered in a tree somewhere and i um uh, uh and i want to share much more of just you know happy travel stories but i don't think we were too happy on this note today um i hope you'll forgive us um is there any happy note from you alistair what did you did you spend some time in nature now that you're in england the power of the human spirit i think we can overcome this i'm in england i'm on the south coast of england where um i am um, i've been looking for fossils um this is in lyme regis wow. one of the places that we, where one. fossils first came from and i'm showing you one that i found a few years ago which i took into a shop today because it's actually the jaw of a sea monster wow. you can't see it of course on the podcast but it's um it's got about 20 teeth in it it's um, a, a sea wow. monster that used this to looks live impressive. You know, 100 million years ago it's pretty amazing um uh, lots of serrate lots of very very sharp teeth and you can see all sorts of fossils on the on the beach here um and luckily it's not 105 um, degrees or 40 degrees celsius here it's um pretty chilly we <laughs> a friend went for a swim yesterday but uh, it's still pretty cold pretty chilly here along the coast um for swimming so so yeah that that was a, this has been an uplifting time for me um yeah, how about you you impressive so you're in devon if said. there's a lot of fossils Dorset, actually, just over the border. Oh, Dorset, Devon, yeah. Dorset, yeah. of course. Yeah, no, I, right, yeah. I mean Dorset. Yeah, yeah but yeah. that's where this woman yeah. was, who was the, the the very first person to ever start to collect all kinds of bones, etc. And then, and the first thinking it was from an elephant or something. And then it, she got more and more pieces together, and that ultimately led to to um, to our knowledge about those. Um, Indeed, uh, Marianne, dinosaurs, lived in this town. Wonderful. Yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah, so yeah. In no, this I town, hope. actually, where you are. Oh, that is amazing. Yeah, I remember reading yeah. about it. It's it's amazing. Uh, there's there's a good chapter in uh, Bill Bryson's A Short History about um, everything, which I think it's it's is a wonderful book that everybody should read. Bill Bryson, A Short History about nearly everything. It's great, and he also writes uh, uh, writes about her and and. How people slowly started to realize that uh, much more than six thousand years ago uh, there was already life on this planet, and that there was uh, that it was amazingly different from what it looks like uh, today. Okay, we have spoken longer than we should. Um, I will probably be back. Um, uh, I will. I will certainly be back tomorrow. Uh, one o'clock Eastern time. So then we start two hours earlier than we started today. Um, and uh, I will, I will write to you uh, what uh, what uh, that is about. Uh, I will have an interesting guest, uh, but I still have to formulate in some short lines uh, what uh, what this will all be about. Um, so stay tuned. Uh, have a look on uh, on Colin probably later today or follow on my Twitter account. Um, what um, uh, what's uh, what's going to come up, and I will uh, most likely be back on Sunday at about five o'clock, which is uh, has become a kind of regular uh, Sunday talk, uh, by lack of a better name, which is normally like a short uh, monologue. Um, thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Alistair. The Wi-Fi was doable. Thanks, Sometimes everyone. you fell off a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, and, the Wi-Fi uh, worked. Thanks, Alex. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, everybody, for listening, too. <laughs> Stay yeah, cool. and thanks for increasing numbers of people listening, which we really appreciate. And I uh, hope to see all of you tomorrow, 1 o'clock Eastern Time. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye.